Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Randall Craig, a mastermind in business growth, marketing strategy, and digital transformation. As the CEO of Pine Tree Advisors, Randall has a knack for turning chaos into order, guiding innovators to scale their ventures and helping organizations navigate the digital age. With a legacy of over 100 major organizations served, eight insightful books penned, and a spot in the Speaking Hall of Fame, his expertise is unparalleled. Whether it's reshaping strategies at 108 Idea Space or fostering professional development at Brain Trust Professional Institute, Randall's leadership is very evident. A proud alumnus of the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management and Ivy Business School, he's not just a strategist, but a thought leader, inspiring many to think and act differently. I've asked Randall to join us here today to share his story and help us unlock the secrets to business success. So Randall, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And before we get into kind of what you've learned and what you know, what you do, uh, and even your journey, I want to know, how did we get started? Are your parents entrepreneurs? Is business like the family yeah. thing? Is this a generational thing to get into business and be entrepreneurial? No, I guess... Way back, way, way back, there were some entrepreneurs in my family, but no, my, my father was a CFO of a very a multi-billion dollar company, public company. And really, I would say that my first MBA was at the kitchen table, just having wonderful conversations with him. But no, I'm the first, I guess, entrepreneur, mostly the first entrepreneur in my family. And I think I, I credit my parents for letting all their children find their own path. And obviously I found mine. That is wonderful. So what, how did you even get started in business? Did you have a paper route or were you shoveling driveways for money in Toronto or what? Oh my God, we're going really back in history. But yes, indeed, one summer I did not have a job as a teenager. And I decided I would take my parents to electric lawnmower and I would cut lawns and everything for people in the neighborhood. And yes, in the winter time, I had the trusty shovel out do and, that, eh? <laughs> oh, you absolutely. had to pick your seasons. That wet snow would break your back. I did that myself. <laughs> That's right. I, you know, I got some a small business or two that said, hey, we need flyers delivered. And we'll give you two cents a flyer. And boy, that was hard work. And I guess I learned a lot. But I guess the other lesson I learned during that is, is that I had a lot of friends who mm. also didn't have money or didn't have jobs. And they said, how do you, how do we get some of this, Randall? And I said, listen, I could, I, if you deliver it one penny per house, one penny per flyer, okay, I think it would work. Would it work for you? And the answer is, yeah, we'd love to do it. My God, I haven't thought about that one for quite some time. At that point, it became very clear to me, even as a teenager, that, you know what, if somebody is very keen on doing something and you can connect them to what they need then they're very happy and there's some value in that. And in that particular case, it was like one penny per flyer that somebody else delivered that was going in my pocket. It was a lot easier. Yeah. And probably like most people, I, I worked in retail through high school and through university, I had all kinds of different jobs. But I think what I learned from all of those is just how fascinating different types of businesses were. Mm. And really that everybody whether it be the, the manager at the hardware store that I, I worked during the summer, or whether it was the guy who ran the factory when I was working in the factory, or they were all teachers. And it really didn't matter what, how many degrees they had, et cetera. They'd paid their dues. And I decided very early, the only way I could be successful 
is if I actually really looked at everybody as my teacher. And I think I was smart enough earlier on to, to say, okay, what did I learn? What did I learn? And that was very exciting for me. Very exciting. So when I went into university, eventually I got into business school and that, that teaches the rudiments. You can have as many instruction manuals as you like. It's very different than understanding how business works and everything. That's how I got to, to university. That's how I got into business school. And by the way, I was very keen on finance. There is nothing more fascinating to me than accounting and finance. Mm. Um, so I thought, so I got, that's where I got my first job. And then the rest was, maybe I don't want to be doing this the rest of my life. And that's a different story. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Obviously, there's a learning curve. I mean, spoke, I wrote down, I'm, I'm a writer downer. So I've been taking notes. But one of the things you said, I wrote down, doing is different than studying reading. So it sounds like you went to school, you had your head you filled with ideas and concepts and theories and formulas and that. And then you went out to the real world. And obviously that was, that education was to prepare you and arm you, but you said there was a difference. What were some of the, the challenges that you faced? So it was different, but I went to a business school, Ivy, where it was all case-based. So three days a week for two solid years, you get three cases a day, do the math. That's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of business situations. And they're in all the different subjects and they're all the different business situations and countries, you name it. So you get exposed to all those challenges, but yeah, it's, it's theoretical. You don't have, even though a lot of the work is group work. Okay. Once you're out there in the real world, thank you very much. There's real clients, there's real prospects, there's colleagues, there's multiple bosses. And when I graduated, I, I did some investment bank type work for an entrepreneur for a year, but then I went into KPMG and they're corporate finance mergers and acquisitions group. And there's a bunch of us juniors and a whole bunch of seniors, like partner types. And we would help medium and small size businesses go through the M&A process or financing process. And it was, a, it was a great experience, but it was real. It wasn't the theoretical constructs that you actually have in an, an easy to learn framework in biz school. I did that for three years and I guess I did relatively well. But something became very apparent, even if you're good at something, that it's got to really turn your crank. You only have one choice, one chance to do something really great. And if you're not enjoying it, you're going to be hollowed out eventually. I wasn't feeling that, but I realized that doing corporate finance and M&A was not going to be my life's work. And in fact, the only people that had fun seemed to be the lawyers who were doing all this creative structuring mm -hmm. of deals. And so mm -hmm. what better idea for me? Then to quit my job, take the LSATs, the law school uh, aptitude test, and go into law school and get a law degree. And boy, that's going to be great. And so I did the LSAT. I got into a whole bunch of schools. And I said to my boss, the national partner in charge of uh, corporate finance and M&A at KPMG, I said to him, well, I wanted to let you know, it was January. I want to let you know that come the end of August, I'm going to leave the firm. I'm going to go to law school. And he said, okay, thank you, Randall. Thank you very much. Thank you for letting us know, which was, I guess, nice. I was a kid, right? And the next day, for whatever reason, the vice chair of KPMG calls me into his office. And his office was twice the size of my living room. His right. desk was like 14 feet wide and eight feet deep. And this guy is six and a half feet tall. He's a big guy. And I'm little old me sitting on the other side of the desk. Bob Coffey was his name. I, Bob, hi, how can I help you? And he says, Randall, I hear you're leaving us. 
I said, that's true, actually, and I'm going to go to law school. And he says, I've got a proposition for you. If you stay where you are, you're just going to do scut work. It's not going to be very interesting. You're not going to work on interesting deals. Okay, here's the other idea. Why don't you come work for me as my early morning assistant? And I said, probably like you're thinking, Daryl, and many of our listeners, what's an early morning assistant? <laughs> the early morning assistant was I would show up and this is him telling me, between 5.30 and 6 a.m. at his desk, and we would just talk for two or three hours, or basically until, until 9. So I'd get there at 5.30, we talk until 9 a.m., and then from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., uh, he would do his job, and I would do my job. And so that was intriguing. And listen, when a vice chairman of a multi-billion dollar, big four consulting accounting firm says, do you want to be my early morning assistant? He could have yeah, told you say me, yes. that's right. You say yes. So I don't know about you, but in my 20s, I wasn't really the guy who went to bed at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. <laughs> and I certainly wasn't the guy who woke up at 4.30 in the morning. Okay. <laughs> but I said yes. And it turns out a, a week later, I start working for him. I show up very bright-eyed, not bright-eyed, very bleary-eyed, but bushy-tailed. And so... He's, he starts drilling me. We're thinking of going into a new business area. Uh, what are the factors you think we should consider? Bang. What about this? Bang. I've got a dispute between two business units. What do you think of? Give me some suggestions. How do you resolve it? Bang. What about this? What if they said that? What if about this? What if, I've got a partnership board meeting tonight. Uh, here's the issue on the table. How would you look at this? How would you look at that? Bang. So after three, three and a half hours, Daryl, it was like... Green fried. Yeah. But it wasn't fried for me. It was electrified, just mm. absolutely electrified. These are really exciting questions. And mm. I'm being asked them, right? And I don't know how much was great sort of perspective or not, okay? But based on his follow-ups and everything, I think they were pretty good. So that was my early morning job. Then between 9 a.m., 9 p.m., <clears throat> excuse me, that was my day job. Or my day job was... I guess one of the groups he was responsible for was the newly merged KPMG's National Marketing Group. So at that point, this is a few years ago now, Pete Marwick Thorne, which was the largest accounting firm, merged with, uh, sorry, Thorne and Winnie merged with Pete Marwick to become KPMG in Canada, the largest professional services firm. And one of this vice chairman's responsibilities was to figure out the marketing strategy and then execute it for the firm as a whole. Mm. So understand there's 75 offices, there's five regions and every single office is a marketing professional. There's a national marketing group with 37 people, okay, newly merged. So what the heck's the strategy and how are you gonna execute it? That was my day job, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And here's the funny thing, Daryl, after Oh, gee, three or four months of this, I made a very startling discovery. Number one, I was having more fun than you could possibly imagine. Yeah, that sounds great. And number two, I really was good at marketing strategy and marketing services. That was, that was something that was very clear. And I made the decision that, no, I was not going to go to law school. But really what I was built for was strategy and marketing strategy for mm. any kind of service-based business. And that's really where I was going to go. So I went out and I got a bunch of job offers. 
And I went into to, 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 to the vice chair's office. I don't know, it was like end of July. And I said, Bob, I need some advice. And honestly, you're working for 16 hours a day for the guy. You get relatively close. And he's still one of my closest mentors to this day, right? Even though he's, he's very old. I've got these three offers. I wouldn't mind your advice. I've decided I'm not going to go to law school. So he's looking through the offers. He's making some suggestions and everything. He says, I'll just put these off to the side. Randall, why don't you stay here? We're a big firm. There's lots of opportunities. So I said, why would I want to stay here? And he said, what would it take to have you stay here? And he just saw all these offers, Daryl. There's no hiding or bluffing or whatever. So I said, I need this, this. Okay, this is a ridiculous set of what I would need to stay yeah. with the firm. And he said, sounds good to me. Would you like this office or that office? And the, what was going through my mind was, crap, I should have asked for more. more. Yeah, if you, you know? ask for everything, you get no pushback. You didn't ask for enough. <laughs> so what I asked for was this. I said I wanted to do some client work. I didn't want to be just doing internal kind of marketing or strategy work, despite the fact that it was a huge firm. But I also wanted to take some full-time responsibility for executing the strategy that I put together. That was, and the reason why is because coming up with a strategy is one thing, but how do you actually land that strategy airplane? And I thought to myself, this is a huge firm. I want to figure out how to make this thing go. And there's no one honestly better than me to do it. And maybe that was like arrogance at the time saying that, but I did believe it because I was so embedded in sort of what my day job was. I knew how to do it instinctively. Right. So he, he said yes to all that. Yeah, there's a different title and yeah, more money and yeah, yeah, an office and everything like that. So I stayed there for a number of years. I scooted pretty quickly up through the ranks. I was on the partnership track, but I had, would have to build several million dollars of, of billings, annual billings, to be admitted to the partnership. Mm -hmm. That's the way these things work in every professional service firm. If you're not bringing it in, you're not a partner, so we're not going to admit you to the partnerships. Right. So I thought to myself, you know, what I'd like to do is I'd like to try the chance of actually, if I got to build it, I'll build it outside, I'll grow, and then I could merge in. Merge so it. the point was, and so I, I said to them, bye-bye. And so I was there for nine years. When I said bye-bye, they were shocked because pretty much everything I touched there was golden. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, but when I left, I started up and most people have no idea who I am. Probably you, you understand that as well. But no, I want really the money, not the fame, personally. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, as, long as, my, as long as my clients are front and center, I mean, there's, my ego is not so big. It doesn't need to be me. Clients are successful. There is this new thing coming out there called the internet. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that, much like AI today, it was going to be absolutely huge. And because I'd been so intimately involved in services marketing and marketing strategy, I knew exactly uh, for organizations like KPMG or law firms or anybody in the services world, entrepreneurs, I knew exactly what needed to be done. I pitched several organizations and they hired me, I hired my new company to actually do the strategy, the internet strategy. And then the user interface and the, the technology followed. So you're probably thinking, okay, so fine. There's a lot of people that have done internet things in the past. I'm the guy that put the Toronto Star online. Okay. Globe and Mail's Globe Investor. These in, in Canada are, that's a financial site. 
These are major mm-hmm. national things, but I also point out that some of these ones, oh, I put KPMG in, online as well. Some of these things were first in the world or in the top yeah. in the 100 of the world. <clears throat> and at the very beginning, it was all about, in my view, content marketing and list building. It wasn't about having an online brochure. So all the technology we developed, it, it was in the service of that. It was all about how do you change a, a mainframe program that just spits out stickers for mailing labels into a CRM, an actually working CRM, right? It's like very significant things. How do you build engagement, okay, so that eventually there's a transaction or at least affinity or less churn or higher retention, all those kinds of things. I did this also with over the years with uh, with global law firms and global financial institutions and tons of regional organizations throughout the United States and Canada, and obviously entrepreneurs as well. And throughout all of this, I developed a number of uh, marketing strategy frameworks that that most entrepreneurs, my God, they all they know all the answers because it's just <laughs> going to into them. But they don't know the right questions to ask. And a lot of these marketing frameworks are the kinds of things that, frankly, if you teach them the framework, you show the questions with them, they know the answers mm. and they can just execute. So can you give an example of one of the market like a of a marketing framework? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of our signature key signature mm. frameworks. You and probably many of the people watching this podcast might remember a marketing framework from actually it was in the 1960s, it was absolutely revolutionary, called the 4P marketing framework. And the idea mm. is if you've got price, product, place, and promo. If you define those things for your business, you will have success. And it was so revolutionary back in the 1960s, which is, my God, it's 60 years. It was mm. revolutionary because before then, it very much was gut. And a, an entrepreneur, an owner, operator would just use their gut to make these decisions. And all of a sudden, if you just plop stuff into the framework, yes, you can use your gut, but it's based on a whole bunch of analytical work that you've done. So that's an example of a framework. But in my view, that framework is for the birds. And the reason why is because it's missing the fifth P, which is prospect. Where the heck in the four Ps is the client, is the prospect, the prospect? Where the heck are they? They're absent without lead. So one of the frameworks that we've developed, and it's a powerful one, is what we call the trust curve. The idea is that as trust grows, so does the relationship to the point of a transaction taking place. And if you define the four stages on the trust curve, are awareness, preference, trial, and commitment. And if you think about it, Daryl, I got to ask you, okay, and maybe the people listening can play along with it. Daryl, did you, when was the last time you bought a car? Oh, geez. 2015, probably. 2016. Okay. So here we are. It's near the end of August. The reason why I'm using this example is that tomorrow I'm going to get a new car. Mm. Okay. So let me ask you, what kind of car did you buy? At the time, it was a Toyota hybrid. I have a driver okay. now, so I don't have a car, but I... But that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Think back to that that particular car. <clears throat> and anyone listening, think back to your car when you had it. Why did you buy that car? What happened? And let me just reach into your mind and suppose some things. There's something that changed. The old car, for example, broke or mm-hmm. it became too expensive to repair. Or, gee, we need kids. We need a bigger car. Or, gee, the neighbor's car was that's pretty sharp. 
So I want that car, not the one that I have. So there's some sort of stimulus that says, I need a new car. Mm -hmm. I want a new car. That's awareness. Now, how did you choose a Toyota? Toyota does all kinds of things, don't they? They advertise, they do stuff on social, right? There's a lot of word of mouth. They've got dealerships. They, there's all kinds of things. They go to trade shows, whatever it is. Those are all preference type activities. And then if you think about your journey to buying the car, you go to the dealership and the dealer doesn't say, oh my God, Mr. Bransky, this is just absolutely wonderful. You came in here with a wheelbarrow full of cash. No. They ask you a few questions and they say, maybe this car over here is the right one for you. Why don't we, why don't we, why don't you take it for a test drive? The test drive is the trial. And then all of a sudden when it comes to, oh, you love the car, it will just totally suit your needs. You're wondering, gee, can I afford it? They've got a whole bunch of commitment activities too. We've got a special on financing. You could do a trade-off. Now trade in, we'll take your old car for you. They could do all kinds of things that make it easier to actually commit. So if you think about what a particular entrepreneur's, actually the biggest organizations in the world, it's the very same thing. The marketing plan can be boiled down to the trust curve. What are the things that you do as a business mm. that, that generate awareness? that drive pre preference, that do that make a test drive, a trial available, and make commitment easy? Or what are the things rather to move from awareness to preference? What are the things that drive people from preference to trial, trial to commitment? Mm -hmm. And so if you think about all the things, everybody who's listening, and you and I for in our businesses, Daryl, okay, there's some things that we do under each of those. Mm -hmm. So a great exercise, certainly with my coaching clients is, what are you doing now? Let's divide it, awareness, preference, trial, commitment. Okay, gee, there's not enough leads. I think we need to work on awareness, preference. Awareness. Yeah. Close. Are you really doing a trial? Maybe the trial is not really good enough. It's not really happening. Or maybe the commitment, there's some issues there. So let's focus there. Or if you're thinking about the content that you produce. So for me, I got, what, like 600 articles and hundreds of podcast episodes and hundreds. 71, I just counted them yesterday, 71 white papers, like all kinds, eight books, yeah, all these things. But where does this content fit on the mm -hmm. trust curve? Some of it is awareness-oriented stuff. Some is preference, some is trial, and some is, is bottom of the funnel towards commitment. And how about the technologies we use? Where does that fit in? Is social media going to, is that a good commitment kind of activity? No, well, no, no, it's, lead gen. it's awareness and lead gen. It's awareness and it's preference, isn't it? So fine, that's where it's social. How about marketing automation? That's preference trial. How yeah. about CRM? Thank you very much. Once they're trialing, you know who they are. So CRM is trial and commitment. So the whole sort of question of, of, of the frameworks, so I've got 11 of them like this trust curve. Mm. So whether I'm coaching a particular client or I'm speaking on a big stage, sharing marketing strategy, it's not talking about the four Ps. And it's not talking about some of these other frameworks that have had their day, but things that actually move an organization or the clients, in the case of the trust curve, from who the heck are you to you're mm. actually. And, and Daryl, I know that you've got a number of folks helping you, whether they're developers or they're marketers or assistants or whatever. Every business that I've worked in, okay, is almost every single one of them has got people that work with them. But yes, of course, there's- This is a team sport. So here's an interesting thing. If we think about the trust curve and you're looking to hire like a key hire, 
it also goes through the trust curve, doesn't it? Huh, I need somebody. Okay, awareness. Preference, I'm going to advertise. Trial, we're going to do an interview, thank you. Commitment, it's an offer letter. And then flip it around from a perspective of a job seeker. It's the very, it's the very same thing, but from their perspective. So if you think about how models like the trust curve can be used within a business, it's very powerful. It's very, so here we are, the two of us are having this great conversation. Okay, you're not a dummy. You've done all the scientific research on the eight factors, etc., that, that grow a business. Okay, you've got a reputation that, that's global in its, in, in its level. Okay, so now I've shared the trust curve with you. And you're probably thinking, well, what awareness activities am I doing? What preference activities? Gee, wh- where is that? Am I really doing trial properly? Gee, for the marketing automation, am I using it to drive people to the next awareness preference trial commitment stage and everything? And there's no doubt you're successful doing what you're doing. But you got there using what you knew and what you studied. But when you've got a framework that that pulls you to look at your business and what you're doing, the investments you're making in your business from a slightly different angle, all of a sudden you're able to get insights that you never would have had before, mm. which means higher sales or lower risk or better hires, or in the case of me tomorrow, maybe a good car, right? Yeah, I love that. And I agree wholeheartedly. I think that marketing, I always tell, it's probably a made up story, but I always say the history... An analogy for the history of advertising was back in the day, everybody was self-employed essentially, unless you worked for a big company. And we were all, unless you were like a grocery store or a blacksmith at a fixed location, you were essentially a traveling salesman, right? And one day you've got this ambitious salesman and he's, maybe he's got a baby on the way. Maybe the wife wants a bigger house, who knows? And he's trying to figure out how do I knock on more doors faster, right? How do I get through more doors? And he's knocking on doors and that goes through the spiel or whatever. And he realizes, hey, if I sit down, I get the same spiel every time I go to the door. If I just sit down and write it out as a letter, I can pay some boys when I get to a city to run ahead to all the houses in front of me. So when I get there, I go through them a little bit quicker. And he starts. And Daryl, yeah, you can charge them. You can pay those boys one cent per flyer. flyer. And then he starts realizing, hey, when I get to these doors, I'm getting these questions. And he updates his letters until now he's actually getting orders without actually even having to go the doors the boys are bringing the letters back and he's put an order form on it and now we have the postal systems developed and now you don't even need to travel you can just send these letters out and that advertising is essentially that sales letter put into a multi-step process exactly what you're talking about the trust curve it's scaling human relationships it's reaching out penetrating the market figuring out people that need help with a problem helping them diagnose their problem and who is the best fit for them or why they should choose you and then like you say making it easy to get started you're not just hi nice to meet you want to get married there's a natural human process to things. And that's really what you're talking about. It's a way, a form of leverage and scaling it. And I think a lot of this, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say a lot of what goes on online is really just a digital copy, a mirror reflection of offline processes. So I think, I I think you're right, but, but I'd like to put some nuance to that. Sure. Gee, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, there's a, I'm sorry, I just can't remember who said it or where the stat came from, but it was, gee, the average American gets bombarded with 10,000 advertising messages a day. And then there was a list, billboards and TV ads and radio ads and bus ads and uh, flyers coming to your home and all kinds of direct mail stuff coming to all these kinds of things, okay? 
And the question was, what can you do? Okay, we can give samples. We can stand out. We can make a bigger envelope. We can make better graphics, better copywriting, all those kinds of things. And of course, at a certain point, people said, the reason why we call it junk mails is it's because it's junk. It does, it's trying to sell me. And then all of a sudden, this wonderful internet thing came about. And oh my God, how often do you check your spam folder? I don't even check it anymore. There's so much crap coming out or the disingenuous posts on social media that are all about me that don't seek to add actually any value. We're getting those 10,000 pieces online where it's very difficult, especially since the, the sender, if you will, is not paying. It's the receiver that's paying effectively. So yes, internet marketing was a thing and it still is, as we both know. But the question is, how do you add the value? How do you stand out? How do you differentiate yourself? How do you get recognized as a thought leader, not just somebody who's an expert or somebody who merely has expertise? And how do you differentiate yourself? So in fact, people say, yes, I'm willing to pay a certain chunk of money every single month for Randall Craig, hmm. or I'm willing to sign up for Daryl's webinars because they're just absolutely great and they're a doorway to the coaching you do with your clients, Daryl. Mm -hmm. So the problem with so much stuff coming and the question of how you differentiate right now, it's an absolute mess. But I will say that I've got a little less hair than you. So let me just say that I remember helping organizations figure out, oh, it's so embarrassing to say this, how email work can work for marketing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, and, then and, and by the way, this, the, the, how to help organizations deal with this new thing called the internet, then the email marketing, and then all of a sudden it's social. And then all of a sudden it's, okay, how do we take advantage of, uh, excuse me, mobile? And now it's all the questions are all about AI. And the question is for large organizations, okay, how do we adopt this? And how do we build transformation and disruption, perhaps in our industries or grow into others? And for my entrepreneurial clients, it's, okay, how do we use this to drive our costs down, to differentiate ourselves, to do so without incurring great risk mm. or embarrassment? Or, or frankly, does this AI thing means we're effectively being disintermediated? For example, if you're a writer, okay, are you all of a sudden... Is your business model of this is how much you pay me per word? Is that really a viable business model going forward? Probably not. How about organizations that actually write content? We're right now at the, at the around the corner from LinkedIn and Facebook and you name the platform being overwhelmed with a deluge of chat, GPT, BARD, Copilot, whatever the platform is of generative AI, pumping out content left mm -hmm. and center, which is, I will just say right now, soulless and just a stirring the stew pot of, of non-original ideas, right? And based on an awful lot of stolen content, frankly, what, what trained. So if you're in a business that requires content, and we know a lot about content marketing nowadays, don't we? If you're, for example, uh, an organization that wants to crank up the content marketing because you haven't done that before, there's so much new and opportunity, new opportunities, I should say, that are available for businesses. Yet I don't think anybody has really spent time thinking about, okay, there actually are some risks here that we need to protect ourselves on. And the stolen content is one of it.
There is a way now, I'm sure you and maybe many of the readers have seen this, that there's a way to block future crawls of your website data, future versions of OpenAI ChatGPT. Yep. All right. Twitter did that. Elon throttled. They were being scraped. There's a couple of things. There were bots trying to monitor like social, I don't know if dissent is the right word, but the public opinion on certain topics. And also there yeah. were huge scraping tools using it for data relevance. Or sorry, yeah, that, that, training. That's right. So he just programmatically said no more bots. But right. on our websites and the viewers' websites, you can now go in with a robots.txt file and add a couple little commands in there. Yep. And all of a sudden, OpenAI in the future will not scrape scrape your website. Okay. But that doesn't speak to anybody else. And we we know obviously about uh, about Google and Microsoft and OpenAI. But thank you very much. You don't think Amazon is doing something, right? You don't think Apple is doing something. Apple might be a little bit more ethical. Who knows? You don't think IBM is not doing something. You don't think that every major tech platform, the various platforms in Russia and China, and the various ones that are more Eurocentric, all of these are busy just hoovering up all of our data. So how do you protect yourself? How do you make sure that if you and your organization, you've got IP, intellectual property, and your staff are busy using ChatGPT or the their elk to actually come up with ideas or communicate or whatever it happens to be. When you load stuff in, in pretty much every case, they're using your questions, the data you load in there as training data for, for point versions. So if indeed it's proprietary, it might be earlier or research where there's no trademarks or copyrights or patents are on it. All of a sudden, ChatGPT knows about it. So what kind of policies do you have to put in place and checks and balances do you have to put in place to make sure that, yeah, you're using ChatGPT and similar programs for your benefit, but you're not putting your business, your differentiators at total risk. So right now, a lot of the stuff that, that I'm either speaking about as a speaker at conferences or working with some of my growth coaching clients across North America. It's okay. So how might we deal with this incredible opportunity while mm. at the same time protecting against risk? I think you you almost alluded to one of the safest bets and ways to protect ourselves from an undesirable future when you talked about putting the Toronto Star online. So what you did was Markets are ultimately unknown and unknowable because if I ask you how many people are in market today for a car, you can look at indicators and search trends and stuff like that. But ultimately, it's unknown. It fluctuates daily and therefore it's all finite on a finite basis. It's unknowable. So markets are unknown and unknowable. We have ideas about them, but they change and flux at it so much that we just can't know. But everybody can acknowledge and recognize excellence. Problems are markets more than demographics and stuff. If there, I always say that if there's a lake, you have a lake and that lake is maybe a problem and that lake supports all these different birds and some birds eat insects and bugs and other birds eat fruits and berries and some birds eat fish and some birds eat other fur birds but they all live around this lake and that lake is the problem that you solve and so if you help someone job hunt high-powered ceos need to find employment and homeless people need to find employment so those are or you take a hockey game you can stream it online at home you can share a couple of beers with friends at the pub and pay-per-view share the cost of the pay-per-view you can pay to go see it in person, but not that much because you're way up in the nosebleed or you can have your feet 
right on the center line, or you can be in a big fancy box, but it's the same core issue. I'm looking for entertainment. I'm looking for something to do. So by focusing on the problem that you solve, the stereotype of who you solve it for, and being the most excellent and taking advantage of all the technological advancements and trends as best as you can to just be excellent. I think that's the best way to hedge your bets. If a business strategy is I'm, we're going to protect our IP and try to maintain this stat, you'll just get out innovated at some point. It's a, it's an art more than a science to that, I think, because there is, there's nothing new under the sun, they say, but yeah. yeah and every story is all Victor Hugo. Every story is all has already been told. I would say, and certainly for all of my owner, operator, entrepreneurial clients, the big question is what kind of moat can you build as you're building mm. your castle? Right. And so you look at some of these moats and some of it might be contractual. Some of it might be IP. Some might be the certain key relationships. Yeah. Okay. Where leads come from, for example, or certain technologies that you use that are very hard. Sometimes it's money. You can't do stuff until you hit the certain scale and you've got that scale. So it's hard right. for other people to come in without that scale. Sometimes, and this is to your point, one of those moats is a state of constant innovation, mm. right? And making sure that you're on the ball with a particular problem as it bobs and weaves and you track it, et cetera. But even there, there's a problem. So on one hand, there's entrepreneurs that have a business that's a great lifestyle business and that's their mm. choice, right? So there's likely not as much innovation in mm. many of those types of businesses. And then when you get to the larger businesses, medium and larger size businesses, you've got executives that might be, yeah, they've got RSUs and options and so on, but very much, certainly for public companies, it's what's the guidance for next quarter and did you hit your numbers? Very short term. And despite the fact that you've got options and RSUs and everything, if you don't hit your numbers for several quarters, you might be looking for a job. And so oftentimes, if it looks like there's the, things are going very well, relatively well, then sometimes it's very hard for an executive to say, let's just cannibalize what we've got. Let's kill the golden goose and replace it with something else. Let's invest hugely in innovation because if they do that, there's this worry that, oh no, what if it turns out to be a bad call and I'll be fired? What if it turns out to be a bad call and the numbers aren't there? Isn't it better just to be an incrementalist and just push things up by a couple percentages each year? So that's also something that, 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 that is terribly difficult. And only the best companies, to your point of excellence, realize mm -hmm. that, no, we've got to have a culture of innovation. We have to have a culture of... Uh, yeah, because people... Because a monopoly is a comfortable place for the company to be, but a lot of people hate that because service diminishes and then you get mistreated and X, Y, Z. And to your point, that strategy didn't work out very well for Blockbuster. Blockbuster was a $6 billion company. They could have hired any talent they wanted. They could have developed any tech. They had an opportunity to buy Netflix and passed on it because they, they thought they knew the business. Exactly to your point, they were focused on hitting their numbers in the next quarter alone. And then they got put out of business. They were ran bankrupt because they lost touch with the market. They weren't cool. focusing on. Let's, yeah. let's flip it around. Let's flip it around from a customer client perspective now. Okay. You decide that you're going to do a whole bunch of marketing. Okay. And let's just say you decide to, what are the big social platforms right now? Okay. TikTok and Insta and Twitter slash X is having some issues. So maybe not so much there. And Facebook, we're going to invest a lot of time and effort there. We're going to build a community. In fact, you might say on that. 
And so I think a lot of organizations that say we're going to be using a platform strategy like this is also a little bit of that incrementalist kind of view because the platform isn't the, the answer, it's this the tool. How many businesses do you know that built their business on that incredible social platform called MySpace? Where'd that go? Bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah. And where did all the businesses <laughs> yeah. that were built on MySpace go? Some of them were able to move, right? Yeah. But a lot of them. Yes. I love what you're saying. And because it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, I actually underscored what you said about your initial strategy with online was content marketing and list building. And so I feel there's such power in that. And I we never circle back to it. We'll probably have to have you back on for another interview or follow-up. But because I have experience with a client where we built their, so their, this is 2013, 2014, we built their Facebook page from 30,000 to 300,000 followers. We were getting 3 million plus impressions organically per week through our Facebook page. And then January 1st, 2014, Facebook introduced the boost post feature where you could oh, pay to yes. boost the post. And we went from millions of impressions to half a million organic impressions a week. And it was going to cost $700 to $1,500 <coughs> US to boost a single post to get the same organic reach that we had before. I have an old client. I had a million, help her add a million dollars to her bottom line. She went to Pakistan. She's from there, came to, went to Texas became very successful, multi-million dollar business, successful Muslim woman, went back to Pakistan, blew up there because she had done some Facebook lives with some religious leaders. She has a million followers on Facebook and she is trying frantically to get as many of them onto an email list as she can because you can't export your Facebook friends. When you post on Facebook, you compete with all the other content and someone's, oh, all yeah. their friends, the babies being had, but you can have an email list and you can email them to invite, follow you on different places. And you can even import your email list to some to send invitations to connect and such. So, so let's just take that to the next level, okay? Because we all know the power of an email list. But really the question, the problem with email lists, very much it's a broadcast approach. There is, there is no, of course, I send something out, people respond to me. Okay, it's very nice. Hey, they hit reply. It's very nice to do this. I might reply back to them. And there's these little onesie, twosie kind of conversations. But the question is, the purpose of the mailing list, is it just to sell product? Oh, sell stuff? Oh. That's right. But a lot of entrepreneurs think that's the holy grail. They're thinking back to 1993 or something like yep. that. But the question really is, once again, let me say two things. How do you build engagement and a community? And let me use a different word. How do you move them up the trust curve? Mm. And so the question of a mailing list I think even a mailing list, I think, is is like old school 1990s thinking, <laughs> as opposed to saying, how do we make sure, based on all of the signals that come in from all the interactions that they have, real world, social, your websites, et cetera, how do you make it so that they're in a marketing automation that speaks directly to all the attributes that you collect. Mm -hmm. And the question of how does an entrepreneur or a not large company start to use big data, it's wonderful to use that term if you're a large global enterprise, they understand that. But for smaller enterprises, it's what's the data that you're collecting? How's it connected together? How are you using it? Your listeners may know terms like lead scoring and true marketing automation. Those are mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. key to it. But when you're just on social, yeah. okay, you're the tenant, as they say. Yeah, you're building your house on someone else's land. 
Right. And you're not even building the house. You're moving into a rental suite that's got yeah. cockroaches, right? This is what's happening. And as opposed and to saying, okay, I want to own the relationship. And my goal is to build that trust in that relationship, to move people through that journey mm. from awareness, preference, trial, commitment. And by doing a blast list, there's a yeah. place for newsletters. There's a place for offers, if you will. But that's a withdrawal from the relationship. Yeah. Not an addition it to wasn't. it. So that's... that's that's the thing. If we're able to collect all these signals and interrelate them together, we can start doing some fascinating things with our own data as entrepreneurs, as smaller businesses. We can start to say maybe the personas that we based our earlier marketing on, which were just these notional ideas, let's take a look at the data to see if there's other types of personas that we that may be interested in different things, or maybe there's a, a journey. Okay. Personalization, segmentation. That's right. And not blasting. Yeah. It's a question. It's a question of how do you make the, in, we're all individuals. Yes, mm -hmm. we do a segment of a gazillion kind of marketing, but how do you make it segment of one where the data that a particular person shares by virtue of their actions, or maybe filling in forms even, or maybe purchases, or maybe attendance at webinars or whatever it happens to be, how do we make sure that their journey is one that takes all that into account so that mm -hmm. they're going to either, yes, I want to commit now to whatever it is, the next step in their relationship with you, a bigger program, a coaching relationship, um, a, a tool purchase, okay, to something more and more. And by mm -hmm. the way, while that trust is growing, all the people for whom they're trusted advisors, hey, George, do you know anybody who might be able to help with this? Why, certainly. We should call Randall Craig or Daryl for that matter. So as people move up that trust curve, it becomes a lot easier for people to say, aha, I could do the referral. But it's the data that drives it. And yes, yeah. these big lists are very valuable. But what's more valuable is to make a prospect understand that you actually understand them and you're not selling them something. All you're doing is helping them through their particular buying journey. I love that. And I love that you use the language of move up through the trust curve versus because people think of a funnel and there's top of funnel, middle and bottom. And even the image just makes it look like it's so easy and people just funnel through. And the reality is there's effort that is required to lift people up out of it. So you go from being some obscure person to a trusted friend and advisor. I love this. Randall, this has been such a great call. I want to be respectful of your time. I've got pages of notes. We're going to have to have you back, I think, for a follow-up at some point. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? How can people reach me? Yes, How's... that's the next one. Oh, go ahead. No, you ask great I... questions. It's a really fun interview. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. So is pinetreeadvisors.us where people should check no. out for more info? Oh, no, the best way. So sorry about that. It's randallcraig.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-C-R-A-I-G, randallcraig.com. That's one place. And the other is braintrustprofessionalinstitute.com. Those are wow. all of my online courses. We can learn all about the tactics of what we've been talking about today. And, wow. and if you're interested in having me speak, you want to reach out to me. Or if you are looking for, for business coaching to scale your business, go to randallcraig.com. Let's make sure we update that. So everyone makes sure they get the right addresses. So that's randallcraig.com, R-A-N. D-A-L-C-R-A-I-G.com, or you can go to braintrustprofessionalinstitute.com, B-R-A-I-N, braintrust, 
professionalinstitute.com. Check out randallcraig.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn, R-A-N-D-A-L Craig. You'll know you got the right one if it says Toronto, Ontario, and of course that he's part of the Brain Trust Professional Institute. Randall, such an honor and a pleasure to have you here today. I really do mean we need to get you back for a follow-up at some point in time. Thank you for coming and sharing with me and my audience and helping build trust with them, knowing that you have your own following, your own clients, you know, your own course members to take care of. Thank you for taking time out of your day to come and help us. My pleasure. Hmm.